Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Killer Kind. It's your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. Today, I have a small announcement. You may have noticed that we have new podcast artwork. About a month ago, I posted on my personal Instagram story asking if anybody knew someone who could design my podcast artwork for me, and I got a few recommendations, so thank you guys for that. I went with this extremely talented graphic designer. Her name is Savannah Gorman. I highly recommend you guys go check out her Instagram page. She has her portfolio linked in her bio where you can see everything that she does. I didn't really know what I wanted. I didn't know what I really wanted it to look like, and she really worked with me and helped me figure out exactly what I wanted it to look like and I absolutely love it. She killed it. If you didn't notice and don't have a clue what I'm talking about, then never mind. Doesn't matter. (laughs) So let's get into today's case. So today we'll be discussing the disappearance turned murder of a beautiful, successful mother of two living the dream, traveling the world while being a powerful mom and businesswoman. She was truly inspiring. So with that said, let's go ahead and dive into the murder of Tara Grant after this. If you love true crime, then you'll love the podcast, Military True Crime Addict. It's a true crime podcast surrounding life events of military personnel, veterans, family members, and those associated with the military in any way. Military True Crime Addict explores a plethora of actual true crime stories that have not been reported on by the news or media. There will be detailed stories that touch on topics such as assault, harassment, abuse of power, murder, and more. This podcast provides a voice to the victims and hears their side of the story. And they raise awareness of the heinous crimes and those impacted. I promise you don't need to know anything about the military in order to enjoy this podcast. I'm already hooked and I know you will be too. So go subscribe to Military True Crime Addict wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's get into today's episode. Tara Lynn Grant was born in Michigan on June 28, 1972. And from the beginning, Tara had a very outgoing and bubbly personality. She never met a stranger. She could make everyone laugh. She just had that type of personality where everyone wanted to be around her. Now, Tara attended Michigan State University, which is where she would meet her husband, Stephen Grant. She was studying business, and he was studying politics. Tara would go on to graduate with her bachelor's degree in business, while Stephen would drop out to work for a senator. And by 2006, the two were married and had two beautiful children, a girl six and a boy four years old. The family lived in Washington Township, Michigan, which was in the metro area of Detroit. Tara was the breadwinner of the family as a successful consultant at an engineering firm. She thrived in the corporate world. She started out at a lower-end job, but then she just worked her way up the corporate ladder, as they say. Her work life was kind of crazy, but she loved it. So, before the two had kids, Tara would bring Stephen along on any business trips, and these trips would take 
the couple all over the world. But once they had children, they knew they had to make the decision to have one of them stay home. And obviously, that needed to be Stephen, since Tara's job brought in most of the money for the family. A few years into this arrangement, Tara's company needed her to be stationed at one particular location, away from Michigan, in San Juan, Puerto Rico. She apparently had to work Monday through Friday in San Juan, and then she would jump on a jet Friday morning and go back to Detroit and spend the weekend with her family, then jump back on a plane Monday morning and start all over again. Her husband, Stephen, really held down the fort at home as a soccer coach and a self-proclaimed Mr. Mom to their two small children. He really loved taking care of his children. He was extremely present in their lives. But he was known as kind of a weird or awkward guy, at least growing up. A childhood friend described him as a guy you thought (laughs) would grow up and rob a liquor store and leave his name tag on and you'd see him on like stupidest criminals or something like that. He went on to say that Stephen wasn't the most popular kid in the world either. He wasn't the best looking guy. So this friend said that whenever he saw his wife, he was like, wow, good job. He never thought that he could land someone like Tara. So the family dynamic was definitely a little odd, but they seemed to be making it work. They lived in a nice neighborhood. Their kids went to a private school. And back in 2003, they hired a nanny by the name of Verena Durkis, who was actually an 18-year-old German au pair who was living with them as well. Now, an au pair is just someone from another country that lives with a host family and They kind of take on some sort of small work for the family and they get paid like a small allowance for doing so. In this case, Verena was there to help Stephen take care of the kids. Because during the week, Stephen worked in a tool and dye shop that his father owned. It's my understanding that I think he worked there part time. He wasn't he wasn't there 40 hours a week or anything like that. But what he was doing there too exactly i'm not sure but i think it was just something to kind of get him out of the house so like i said not your typical family but it seemed to be working or wasn't <laughs> on friday february 9th 2007 tara boarded the plane home like she did every friday however come monday morning she did not show up for her flight back to puerto rico and she never made it back to work again This was completely unlike Tara. She had never missed a flight back to work. And Stephen would later say that his wife came home on Friday like normal. And at some point during the weekend, she told him that she'd be leaving for Puerto Rico a day earlier than expected. So Sunday instead of Monday. This immediately started a fight between the couple because he wasn't loving that she was gone during the week already. But now to be leaving a whole day earlier, it just really upset him. He said, this has got to stop. You know, you're gone all the time. After this, Tara supposedly answers a phone call at around 11.15 p.m. where she says that she'll be out in a minute and that she would meet this person, whoever, at the end of the driveway. Stephen claims she went down the driveway, got into a black service-like car, and left. A few hours later, Stephen tries calling her again and leaves her multiple voice messages Um, one of those voicemails released to the public says, Hey, look, it's after two by now. I just want to know what's going on. I think you owe me and your kids at the very least, you owe them an explanation. Now for the next few days, Stephen calls her friends and family explaining what happened. 
And they all say kind of the same thing collectively, that she's probably just trying to calm down, cool her jets a little, and just isn't ready to talk to Steven yet. Just give her some space right now, and everything will be fine. However, after five days of not being able to get in touch with her, Stephen goes to the Macomb County Sheriff's Department and reports Tara missing. And the search pretty much began right away because nobody in this suburban area just went missing at the time. Um, it was not something that ever happened in the area. So right away, police, the community, everyone was concerned. And they all step up and help find Tara. Sergeant Pam McLean and the Macomb County Sheriff's Department takes on the case. And right away, her and her partner on the case, Brian Kozlowski, just feel like things don't add up. They just get an odd feeling about the whole situation. So they go to Stephen's house, mainly just to talk to him and go over everything that happened from the Friday that she got home up until when he reports her missing. Now, when the two officers arrive, they can tell right off the bat he's nervous. Sergeant McLean said he was already fidgety and overly cooperative, and the more questions they asked him, the more nervous he became. But I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and actually the investigators in this case said it too. Just because somebody is nervous when being asked questions doesn't mean they did something wrong and doesn't make them a killer. But while at the Grant home, they also wanted to speak to the family's nanny, Barina. She told investigators that she was out during when Tara supposedly left. And when she got back, Stephen ran up to her thinking it was Tara walking in the door. And when he realized it wasn't, he goes on to explain what will happen that night. And Verena gives the same story from there that Stephen does. And before leaving, after questioning the two... They asked Stephen if he'd be willing to come down to the station the next day to take a polygraph test. Now, Stephen was kind of taken aback by the question, and he asks if they thought that he had something to do with Tara's disappearance. They assured him that they didn't. They told him that if they really thought he had something to do with it, then they'd be taking him downtown now, like at that moment. <laughs> so that made him kind of relax a little bit, and he agreed to come down to the station the next morning to take the polygraph. However, when that next morning rolls around, investigators get a call from Stephen's lawyer stating that Stephen would not be taking the polygraph test and that if they wanted to speak to Stephen, they had to do so through the lawyer. Now, investigators are confused, okay, because the day before everything seemed fine. They didn't say anything that should have led Stephen to believe he was being considered a suspect. The husband is always the first person police look at when a wife goes missing. This was nothing more than standard protocol. So why on earth did he lawyer up so fast? This obviously put police on alert. Sergeant McLean and her partner Brian initially thought something was off about this guy anyways. But now they were certain their suspicions were correct. So the investigators tried to verify Stephen's story of what happened that night. They start by looking into this car service vehicle that Steven supposedly saw her getting into that night. So they called a few different local car services. They called those located at the airport, and nobody had any record of a car going to the Grant's residence that night. Then they checked local hotels, 
in airport hotels to see if she was staying at one of those. And there was no sign of Tara anywhere, no evidence that she had ever checked into any hotels in the area. And then they also checked her phone records to see who Tara spoke to that night. Based on based solely on the story Stephen gave of her answering a phone call and telling whoever that was on the other end that she would meet them at the end of the driveway. And those phone records came up with nothing. Nothing showed that she answered a phone call that night around that time, and there was no suspicious numbers that she answered or called. They also found out that she never actually went back to Puerto Rico after checking all the airlines either. They went through Tara's bank statements and her credit cards, and there was no sign of her using her bank account since before she was last seen. So needless to say, in the end, the police came up with nothing to verify Stephen's story. During all of this, Stephen is not cooperating with police, but he is staying in contact with the media. He would ask the media what they knew about the case. He would try to get information out of them instead of the police. Any chance he got, he would speak to the media and plea for Tara to come home or cry on camera saying he wished she would come home. I've got a clip from one of the media interviews for you, and I'll let you be the judge of whether or not you think he's being genuine. I hope it's over. There's 10 messages from her. When I walk back into the room, please call anybody. Call the police. Call me. Call my in-laws. Call someone. If you see her, tell me. Please. I'm sure you can hear it in his voice, but if you were to watch the interview, you can tell there's just something off about it. The whole time he's talking and seeming to cry, there are no tears. There is no emotion behind his eyes. It definitely appears to be an act. And that wasn't even the strangest part. Police were watching these interviews as well, and in order to try to catch him changing his story or to see if he said anything bad about Tara... And to also watch his body language as well. And Stephen delivered. At one point he says Tara was a wonderful mom. But then later he says that she never had enough time for her kids. And at one point he made this strange comment. Quote, as weird as it sounds for me to say this, I was the perfect mom, not Tara. I was a better mom than Tara was. There's no other way to put it. I was the mom in the house. Tara was gone all the time. If the kids needed someone to take them to swimming or school or to soccer practice, I was the one that took them. This was obviously concerning because the, his tone was very resentful towards Tara, not exactly that of a grieving husband. Police had also set up surveillance on Stephen shortly before this interview, trying to catch him in a lie or trying to get him get something on tape proving he's not being truthful. They start to notice that Stephen was going around to all of the local gas stations and grabbing every single newspaper with Tara's story in it. It's unclear exactly why he was doing this. It could be to keep her story from being out there to the public, although he went to all the local news channels to talk about Tara. Um, so I doubt that's it. Others have speculated that he was just trying to get as much information about the case as possible. Although he could have just called the police department and acted like a normal grieving husband. That shouldn't have been a problem. 
But also while police were surveying Stephen, they discover he was having an affair with the nanny. Surprise, surprise. About six weeks prior to Tara's disappearance, Stephen starts confiding in Verena. And initially, it's just harmless conversations and the two develop a sort of friendship. Then that friendship turns into a sexual relationship. People speculated that with Tara rarely home and him playing the Mr. Mom role, he was feeling emasculated and was just looking for some attention. Poor, poor Stephen. (laughs) Others claim he was looking for that connection since he wasn't getting it from his wife and come to find out that he had actually had another relationship with a former girlfriend as well, who later came forward and explained um, their conversations prior to Tara's disappearance. So, this guy was getting around. I mean, I have to say, frankly, I'm not surprised this was going on. I think the whole work situation and Stephen being Mr. Mom, home alone with an 18-year-old nanny, obviously a very weird, odd, insecure guy already. I just think it was bound to happen, and it just set their marriage up for failure. It's very sad, but not surprising. And at the time, Stephen believed Tara was having an affair of her own with her boss, supposedly, which is why he got so angry about her leaving a day early. He thought the reason she was gone all the time and wanted to be gone all the time was because of this affair. Now, I have found nothing confirming that. It could have been Stephen just being paranoid because, as I've learned previously in my life, (laughs) if somebody is cheating on you, nine times out of ten, they're going to start accusing you of cheating. So if your significant other starts accusing you of cheating and you know that you haven't and you have no reason for them to think that, just think about what you learned here today on The Killer Kinds, okay? Anyways, moving on. And let's get back to the investigation. So while police are surveying Stephen, sort of chipping away at his story, they are still not getting anything out of Stephen himself. Any questions are still having to be asked through the attorney. And if you remember, he refused to take the polygraph test that Sergeant McLean suggested. However, police would find out that he did in fact take a private polygraph test and that came back as inconclusive, meaning they couldn't tell if he was telling the truth or not. It was at this point that investigators catch a break. But before we get into that, let's back up. So during those TV interviews, Stephen starts talking about a certain place called Stony Creek Park, not far from the family's home. He just kind of kept bringing it up. He mentioned it several times, almost like he couldn't help it. Now, he said this is somewhere he would take the kids to play. This is somewhere they would all go as a family. So police start to think maybe they need to check there for Tara, just to kind of take a chance. And police actually announced that they're going to search this area. But guess who offers to help with their efforts? Stephen Grant, the same guy who hasn't been cooperative with police at all, all of a sudden wants to help with the search. If that's not a red flag or a determination that investigators are searching the right area, then I don't know what is. (laughs) Unfortunately, though, police do not find anything during their search. But they make a public announcement saying that if you're in the area, please keep an eye out for anything out of the ordinary, anything that might stand out, or anything at all, really. And that's when they catch their big break. On February 28th, a woman walking through Stony Creek Park sees a small plastic bag 
tucked into a tree. This was after she had seen where police told people to keep an eye out in the area. So she decided to take a look at the bag. She found a pair of latex gloves, some metal shavings, and some blood inside the bag. Poor thing. I'm sure she was traumatized. Police were able to determine the blood inside the bag was, in fact, human blood, which was huge. This was all that police needed. Three weeks after Tara went missing, on March 2nd, investigators get a search warrant for the Grant home. But they didn't want Stephen to know they were coming, so they actually go to his work and escort him to his house. That way, he didn't have time to like hide anything or do anything before they got there. A few of the officers stayed behind at Stephen's work and were able to determine that the metal shavings found inside the bag definitely came from this machine shop that he worked at. Now, after they arrive at the house, they sit Stephen down and tell him what all they're going to do. Um, Stephen says that he wants to walk his dog for some odd reason. Now, police aren't technically holding him there, so he's not detained or anything. He's able to go and do whatever he wants. However, Stephen walks out, one without his dog, and heads towards his car. A police officer rushes out there and tells him, you can't do that. <laughs> That's part of the search warrant saying that he can't take anything from the property, including his car. Stephen gets mad. He said that he was just looking for his wallet. But again, the officer tells him, sorry, you can't take anything. You're free to go as you want to, but you can't take anything. So Stephen ends up storming off again without the dog that he was supposedly going to walk. <laughs> and he just walked down the street. And police would soon realize that they should not have let this guy go. Because not long after Stephen walks away, police go into the garage of the home and find a plastic bin. Inside that bin were a couple of black plastic bags, one of which was just like the bag found in the park. That bag contained more latex gloves and metal shavings. But when opening the other plastic bag, police make a horrific discovery. The large plastic bag contained a woman's torso without the legs, arms, or the head. Investigators knew they needed to find the rest of Tara's body, so they took cadaver dogs back to Stony Creek Park, and they were able to locate more body parts. While they were searching the park, they realized their prime suspect is nowhere to be found, and they need to get him into custody ASAP. So police put out a bolo, the FBI swarmed the state, conducting a full-on search for this guy, and they also make a public announcement to the media that their prime suspect is missing, and if you were to see him, please contact authorities. After that announcement was made, Stephen's lawyer called the police and told them that Stephen had called him several times the night before, and he believed that Stephen might harm himself. Authorities contact Verena, his supposed love interest, and she said she hadn't seen him or anything, but that he called her earlier in the day to confess his love to her, but also saying that they could never be together. Obviously, police are becoming more and more worried that Stephen might try to commit suicide, so they are frantically trying to find him. They get in touch with a sister who said she believed he was going to Michigan's Wilderness State Park which is somewhere that Stephen and Tara used to go camping. Then a friend of Stephen's calls and tells investigators that he loaned Stephen his yellow truck 
but didn't know that he was on the run. I mean, this guy isn't the brightest bulb in the box, right? You pick a yellow truck as your getaway vehicle. That's a great way to stick out like a sore thumb. So, armed with this information, investigators head to Wilderness State Park, where they find the yellow truck and also footprints in the snow leading away from the vehicle. Police searched through the night in the snow, and finally the next morning, they find Stephen lying at the base of a tree. He had severe hypothermia, and he was conscious, but he was experiencing hallucinations. When they found him, he was talking to the trees like their buddies. (laughs) He was only wearing a shirt, pants, and socks. He had written goodbye notes to his children, which is horrible. He had alcohol, pills, razor blades, and a toy gun, which the toy gun was explained to be something that he was going to try to point at police, hoping they thought it was real so that they would shoot and kill him. So let me get this straight. You have the guts to murder and dismember your wife, but you don't have the guts to kill yourself. Doesn't fully make sense to me. But I'm thankful that he didn't because he deserves much worse than suicide. Due to his severe hypothermia, Stephen was airlifted to a nearby hospital. And after he was treated and he was back to his right state of mind, Macomb County Sheriff's Detectives McLean and Guskowski arrive and they place Stephen Grant under arrest for the murder of his wife. They ask him if he would like to talk. And by their surprise, he does. He said that Tara came home that Friday night, and Tara tells him that she'll be leaving a day early, all of which we already know. Tara was unpacking her bag, and the couple starts to argue about her leaving early, but also about her busy work and travel schedule. The argument quickly escalates. Stephen supposedly grabs Tara's wrist to get her to stop unpacking, and she turns around and slaps Stephen across the face. After that, Stephen either shoves her or he hits her. I've read two different versions of that particular moment. But after that, Stephen said she fell and she hit the back of her head on the floor. Then she said something along the lines of, you know, that's it. I'm taking the kids and you're going to be homeless. Basically saying they're getting a divorce and she'll leave him with nothing. It's at that moment that Stephen becomes even more enraged and does the unthinkable. He said he choked her. He put his hands around her neck and choked her. He said at one point she grabbed his hands trying to get him to stop. But he said at that point it was too late. He couldn't stop. He knew he was already going to prison. So he panicked. Stephen goes on to say that she was looking right into his eyes and fighting him the whole time. But eventually he grabbed a piece of clothing to cover her face so he didn't have to look at her. Like the coward he is, okay? After more than four minutes, Tara has passed. And as if he's not a piece of trash already, killing his wife while his two kids are sound asleep in their beds right down the hall, he said he wrapped his brown leather belt around her neck in order to pull her down the stairs because he knew he couldn't carry her. So he gets her body down the stairs. He struggles to get her into the trunk of their SUV, but he does. He walks back inside to change clothes, and this is when Verena comes into the house and asks him what was going on. I'm sure she could tell by the look on his face that something was wrong. So that's when he concocts the story that they got into the fight and she left. 
After that, he begins to cover his tracks a little bit by calling Tara's phone to leave the voicemail messages and starts calling some of her friends and family. The next day is when everything takes an even darker turn. After sending his kids off to school, Stephen takes the SUV with Tara's body in the back to his father's machine shop where he worked. He said he laid out a bunch of tarps on the floor and he removes her from the car. He places her body on top of the tarps and begins to dismember Tara's body. He wraps each body part up in a plastic bag and places them all in a plastic bin. Early the next morning, Stephen grabs his kid's sled in order to easily transport the bin of his wife's body parts and heads out to the snow-covered Stony Creek Park. While standing on a hill, he puts the bin on top of the sled and the bin starts to slide down the hill. He said he actually had to chase after the sled. He eventually caught up to it, but at this point, everything had kind of fallen out of it. The parts were scattered everywhere and the bin had broken in the process. He said after he gathered everything back up, he buries all the parts around the park. Sergeant McLean said he was hoping the wildlife within the park would eat the remains and therefore would just leave bones, which would make it a little easier to avoid detection. But he even said that he did a very bad job of hiding anything. It was right there in the open. So when he heard police were starting to search the park, he panicked and went and got the torso because that's one part that he didn't think he hid well enough. Sergeant McLean said he actually first removed it from the park, then took it to his father's business, and he put it on top of the office area. It stayed there for about a day. Then he was paranoid that it might start to smell, so that's when he took it to his garage. Sergeant McLean said their timing just happened to be perfect because he had just moved her torso back there the night before the home was searched. Police do find more body parts buried in the park. They actually find 11 more parts of Tara's body to be exact, although it was believed there were 14 parts out there. They also found the saw blades Stephen used to dismember the body. Those blades still had Tara's flesh on them, which just makes this even more disturbing, but also helps investigators put the pieces together. On December 7, 2007, nine months after Stephen was arrested for the brutal murder of his wife, Stephen pleads guilty to mutilation, but only to second-degree murder, claiming the murder was not premeditated. And that's when the case goes to trial. After three weeks of testimony and deliberation, Stephen Grant was found guilty of second-degree murder and mutilation of a corpse. He was sentenced to a minimum of 50 years in prison. Tara's sister took in the couple's two children, and every year her family hosts a Tara Grant Memorial 5K run slash walk to raise awareness and money for domestic abuse programs. And that's it for today's episode. I didn't mention this in last week's episode, but I did put a number in a website for victims of domestic abuse in the show notes for last week's episode for those who may need it. I'll do that again this week. The website also helps those who are 
friends of someone who is experiencing domestic abuse. It lists ways to support that person, gives advice on starting the conversation, and also gives warning signs to be on the lookout for. In today's case, I don't think abuse was a regular thing. I think it was just something that happened in the moment, but I think it's always important to learn more and to kind of educate yourself on abuse. That way you can help a friend or somebody you know, or maybe you need help recognizing it for yourself. But that'll do it for me this week, guys. I'd love if you leave a five-star review on the podcast wherever you can. That would mean a lot. But I'll be back here next week with another episode. Until then, stay safe out there, guys. Bye.